Park Hopping Podcast number 77, Standing in Line. We're standing in line, we're standing in line. We want to get in, so we're standing in line. We're standing in line for a very long time. We want to get in, so we're standing in line. There's lots of important things to say. This is not art. Coming up next in our show. This is not media. First, the news. This is not news. Now, welcome back to the show. This is... Another crappy podcast production. Celebrating over 12 years of posting Disney stuff on the internet. This is... Another crappy podcast production. Hi there, this is Alan from DisneyFans.com, and this is the Park Hopping Podcast, show number 77, the podcast that proves anyone can have their own podcast. I've been listening to lots of annoying-sounding podcasters lately and thought maybe I, too, would try to sound just like them. Welcome back to the Park Hopping Podcast, broadcasting live and direct from the crappy podcast studios here in the heartlands of America, Des Moines, Iowa. Okay, that's enough of that. Hey, previously on the Park Hopping Podcast, I shared with you a bit about how I've been planning my current December vacation to the Disneyland Resort in California. Today on the Park Hopping Podcast, I'm going to discuss a bit about one of the least favorite aspects of any Disney theme park vacation and why avoiding it altogether may not be the best solution. Um, but, But first, an embarrassing addendum to last week's episode. You see, a few days ago, I received an email from one of those travel flight watching websites. It had a great list of questions and answers about all kinds of things related to air travel, including some of the new changes I wasn't aware of yet. It also had the option to submit flight information and have the service monitor ticket prices, letting you know if the price goes higher or lower than when you book the ticket. On some airlines, they will price match if the ticket price goes lower than when you booked it, so I thought it might be fun to see just how much ticket prices will fluctuate between now and December. So I pulled up the saved confirmation email I had from Travelocity to get my flight information, and then I noticed something uh, odd. My confirmation claimed I was flying out in September. The day of the month was correct, but the month was wrong. Had I somehow managed to book a flight three months earlier than I intended without catching it? Well, apparently I did. Either that or there's some some kind of weird glitch at Travelocity's website. But since they successfully deal with thousands and thousands of customers every day, that seems unlikely. In the short time I spent booking the flight, I started over a number of times checking different options and apparently missed clicking something the final time. Since the days of the month line up for both September and December, both months start on Monday, I guess after seeing it over and over a few times, I stopped focusing on the month and completely missed seeing that it clearly said September on the email confirmation. So my bad there. And to make matters worse, I'd missed my flight, which I wasn't planning on taking in September. I was a no-show. I booked, paid for, received confirmation, and then just did not show up for a flight, which is odd because Travelocity usually sends out emails before the flight, and I even have it set up to send text messages to my phone to remind me. I guess for whatever reason they didn't do that the one time I actually would have needed it. So what can I do? I spent a good portion of the day on the phone trying to get this sorted out. Obviously, I paid for and confirmed something that I didn't use, so if they said too bad, I'd have to live with that. But I figure customer service isn't completely dead and buried in America, so I thought I'd start by calling Travelocity. After a really long time on hold, they couldn't help me. They put me on hold to call the airlines to see if the ticket could be rescheduled, 
and then they disconnected me. Hopefully this was an accident. I was trying to be nice. I called back and got got through a much quicker and eventually was told that they were given the okay to rebook me, but I'd have to pay them $180 per ticket to do so. Was there anything else I could do? Well, I paid for travel insurance, which does not cover user error like this, but they gave me a phone number and suggested I try. I called the Travelocity Travel Insurance and was told I was out of luck, but I could still file a claim and see if there was any chance they'd make an exception. Since I knew this was not a covered reason for missing a vacation, I decided just to call the airline directly instead. I got in touch with customer service, and a very helpful lady named Donna worked with me and got me in touch with the right people to rebook. She was able to, as she said, quote, meet me halfway, end quote, and give me a partial credit to help me with the rebooking fee. On the website, I was able to find a similar flight in December at the same price, and I rebooked it, only to see a $150 per ticket fee for rebooking, which was more than what Donna expected. So I called her back explaining the situation. She was able to help me out a little bit more, and eventually I was able to rebook. I say eventually because I first tried to do it on the website, only to find that rebooking can't apply travel vouchers online. You have to call in to do it. Calling in has a $20 surcharge, and I didn't want to do that. So once again, I called Donna back, and we finally got a new flight booked with no $20 fee and a very fair portion of the outrageous rebooking fees taken care of. So overall, it was a $100 mistake and I'm embarrassed I made it. On the plus side, the new ticket now will give me a few more days in the park. So, provided I can afford the extra hotel, food, and car rental fees, it's actually going to be a better vacation. Just a more expensive one. So, a big thank you to Donna, wherever you are. So, people, read those confirmations. Seriously, even if you're a wise-ass know-it-all like me who thinks he can do this stuff in his sleep... Well, check them anyway. I guess it's not bad having one mistake in 15 years, but it's a mistake I shouldn't have made. And thank goodness I'm saving enough money on the trip, otherwise that 100 bucks, you know, might have hurt me. Oh, and another important thing. Remember how I book with Hotwire for the cheapest car rentals? Here's a downside. Hotwire bookings, car, airline, whatever, are non-refundable, period. They cannot be refunded or even changed. So now... Uh, when I need a few extra days of car rental, I have to book a separate rental. And I won't use Hotwire, which would be the cheapest way, since they don't show the rental place until after you've paid. If it's on a different company, I'd have to drive all the way back to the airport and swap cars during my vacation. No way. So instead, I'll find a way to book the extra days directly with Hertz and explain to them at the counter that I'd like just to keep the car between the two rental periods. Hopefully that'll work, because if I find out I still have to drive back to the airport anyway to swap out and do car paperwork, I might as well have saved money and used Hotwire again. And another money savings tip, those car rental discount coupons may not be such a great deal. Always check the discount travel sites too. Using a company discount code I have through work, I found I could save 33% on my Hertz rental, bringing my price down to $87 for three days. That's pricey compared to Hotwire, but, you know, 33% is 33%. But when you go to Travelocity, their rate for the three days on Hertz was already about $85, and they give that to anyone, no coupon required. It kind of makes those coupons not really worth much, doesn't it? The same thing applies to AAA discounts and some other stuff I looked at. None of them gave any better deals than what was already listed on Travelocity. I don't know why. Oh, and the same rental on Expedia.com was $17 more. I had actually called Hotwire to try to expand the rental originally, and he explained to me there was nothing they could do and suggested I try Expedia. 
I guess they're all part of the same company. Anyway, I'm glad I double-checked. 17 bucks is 17 bucks. I mean, that'll buy me a churro and a Coke at Disneyland, right? Almost. Well, may my troubles not be your troubles. Now, maybe I wish I hadn't turned down the travel agency that approached me about sponsoring this show. But I digress. Today on the Park Hopping Podcast, we'll pretend I didn't do something as stupid as misbook my airline flights by distracting you with something completely different. But first, you knew that was coming, didn't you? A few comments sent in by listeners just like, well, well, not just like you, unless you're a listener who sends in feedback, but by a guy named Jeff who wrote in on a few things. In Park Hopping 74, I talked a bit about interactive elements of the Disney parks and asked if you knew any others. Jeff mentioned the old telephones at the Market House on Disneyland's Main Street. You can pick them up and eavesdrop on your party line conversations. The next time you're there buying coffee in the morning and keeping your receipt because you get free refills all day long, just wander over to those phones on the wall and take a listen. Good call. No pun intended. We also had a brief conversation about some of the old custom-designed, or at least custom-rethemed mechanical arcade games Disneyland used to have in the Penny Arcade. There were even some custom Pirates of the Caribbean and Country Bear Jamboree machines, which have long since vanished from the park. The only leftover one I can think of is the Dancing Woody found in Frontierland. I kind of wonder if that's the old Country Bear dancing machine rethemed to Toy Story. Oh, and he also caught a mistake I made listing the parks. Apparently, I flubbed listing opening dates in Park Hopping 75, reading the year 1989 and mentioning Euro Disney, skipping over Disney MGM Studios that actually opened in 89. Euro Disney opened in 1992, I know this, sorry about that. My notes were right, but my reading wasn't, so that's my mistake, and I can't even blame it on Wikipedia. So thanks for catching that, Jeff. And as another follow-up to episode 75, wow, feedback comes in much more often when I'm actually producing episodes. I will mention that one of the family members who runs the Adventureland Park in Iowa says that the Walt Disney Company, and I quote, actually assisted with some early park planning and received some assistance from Disney. I don't know the details of this. It's just something that one of the sons of the park's founders told me. If anyone is interested, I can try to find out more. And finally... One more set of comments from Jeff in response to seeing the Adventureland video that went along with the audio in episode 75. After an earlier joke where he said, quote, How did I miss that Disney opened a 12th theme park? The Imagineers need to quickly divert some of that money earmarked for Disney's California Adventure to improve this place, especially the Pirates ride, end quote. Well, he created a list of things the Imagineers can do to enhance this park, and I got a kick out of it. So here they are. Number one, for the Pirates ride, add dreadlocks and gold teeth. Number two, for the elevator stage, add Darth Vader. Number three, for the teacups, add some Chinese lanterns. Number four, for the saloon, add some hillbillies. Number five, move the carousel from town square since it blocks the view of the castle. Displace some teepees if you have them. Number six, build the castle. (laughs) And number seven, oh, and get a bigger bush for the little green speaker. So thanks so much for that, Jeff. Number six is by far my favorite. And now, finally, on to the new show. Disney Transportation, Disney's Fast Pass, and Disney's Magical Express are three initiatives the Disney theme parks have created to make visiting Walt Disney World more enjoyable. First, there was the exclusive Disney transportation that on-site guests had access to just by spending the money to stay at an on-site Disney resort. Originally, this just meant that a handful of resorts had a monorail station that could take you and your family from the hotel to the Magic Kingdom without ever needing to hop in a rental car. Over the years, 
The resorts and theme parks expanded, but the monorail system did not. Buses and bus stops were added. Guests at a resort could now board a bus or two or sometimes more to get from their hotel to the other resorts or theme parks or shopping areas. They even added a bus stop right in front of the Magic Kingdom, meaning for the first time someone could get in a vehicle and just be dropped off right at the entrance. In the past, the only way to get to the Disneyland sequel park was by ending up a mile away and then taking a journey across the seas or in the sky on either the ferry boat or a monorail. Today, on-site guests may never have even set foot on some old boat or aging monorail during any of their visits, all thanks to Disney transportation. I've spoken about Disney transportation several times in the past, so you may be glad to know that today's episode is not actually about Disney transportation. Instead, let's talk a bit about Disney's FastPass. According to legend and quite possibly an inaccurate Wikipedia article, Disney surveys found the number one complaint of guests were all the lines. Obviously, these were complaints by guests who chose to visit the parks during the busiest times of the year rather than visit in an off-season when even the popular e-ticket attractions often have little or no wait. I can't think of any attraction at Disney World that I haven't been able to just walk right on during certain visits. Of course, in the summer, before FastPass was around, there were attractions I simply missed during my evening-after-work visits to the park due to the long lines, like Splash Mountain and Big Thunder Mountain or Space Mountain. I guess tourists must really like mountains. Of course, some guests have no choice but to visit over spring break or during the summer when school is out. So Disney took a cue from the restaurant industry and started what was basically reservations. It reminds me of a scene from Douglas Adams' science fiction BBC radio series where our main character, Arthur Dent, finds himself lying down in the path of a bulldozer trying to prevent it from knocking down his house. His alien friend, Ford Prefect, talks to the construction crew and convinces him that, since Arthur is intent on lying there all day and therefore no bulldozing can get done anyway, that perhaps Arthur doesn't really need to be lying down there all the time and he can instead pop off for a quick drink at a local pub. To me, Fast Pass is like that, because it allows guests who are going to be standing in line for an hour to pop off for a quick souvenir at the local gift shop and return to their place in line later in the day. The system has allowed those intent on riding their favorite e-ticket attractions at least once during their visit, but not by standing in a two-hour line, to actually do that without standing in a two-hour line. And since actual ride capacity of the attraction hasn't increased or decreased because of this, the same number of people are still riding the rides in a day just like they always did. It's just that those who call ahead for seating may get to ride, while those who don't may not. At least not without standing in a two-hour line. I've spoken about FastPass several times in the past, so you may be glad to know that today's episode is not actually about FastPass. Instead, let's talk a bit about Disney's Magical Express. Now that getting around the Walt Disney Resort became easier, thanks to monorails, ferry boats, and buses, and as experiencing the attractions themselves became more pleasant thanks to Disney's FastPass, the next initiative seems to have been getting guests to quit leaving the resorts and spend all their time there, and thus money, at Walt Disney World. After all, guests that had their own rental car could easily hop in it and take a short and easy drive down the way to check out SeaWorld for the day, or Universal Studios, or Isle of Adventure, or Cypress Gardens or any of the hundreds of other tourist destinations that had popped up just outside Walt Disney World since it opened in 1971. The Disney solution was to simply give guests less of a reason to have a rental car. 
Disney started picking up resort guests at the airport for free and shuttling them right to their resort where they could begin their vacation using Disney transportation to get around. For those already willing to spend a premium on Disney-branded hotel rooms, this this added free perk allowed them to actually save a bit of money by no longer needing a rental car. Well, you know, in truth, it probably saved them quite a bit more if it kept them from having to buy separate tickets to SeaWorld or Universal, though at the same time it may have cost them a bit more since they could no longer easily go off-site for a nice dinner or find a cheap Florida souvenir somewhere. But, but I digress, sort of. The point is, Magical Express was a benefit to the guest and a financial benefit to Disney. That's about as much of a win-win as you can find. And with the hassle of getting to and from Disney World removed, and the hassle of finding your way around the place removed, and the hassle of standing in line removed, it seems to me like we'd end up with a much better overall experience. Well, unless you actually do like to go to Universal Studios once in a while, maybe to check out some new attraction, or you think spending a day at SeaWorld would be a relaxing change of pace, including free beer at their hospitality center, if they still do that under new ownership. Or maybe you really want to go see where the space shuttle launches from, or walk through a cheesy wax museum, or experience some local dinner show. There are many options folks may simply not choose to do now, since uh, they require extra effort. So by making it easier to not spend money, even if behind the scenes it's actually costing us more money, there are all kinds of potential fun discoveries that a vacation family may no longer experience that 20 years ago many did. It's a very smart move for Disney, and to a whole new generation of visiting guests who have never had to have a rental car with the option to drive anywhere they wanted when they wanted to, this simply is just how it is. So my topic today is really not about Disney transportation, Disney's Fast Pass, or Disney's Magical Express. It's about the things that these value-added services have taken away from the guests. Things that many old-timers may have always included as part of their Disney vacation experience that new-timers have never experienced. So we start with transportation. As a kid in the 1970s, our trip to Walt Disney World was in a van driving from Houston, Texas. There wasn't much around Walt Disney World back then, mostly orange groves. There certainly weren't value resorts and thousands of rooms to stay at on property. And even if there were, it was still so much cheaper for a road-tripping family to stay off-site and just drive to the only theme park there, the Magic Kingdom. And that's what we did. I remember the fun on the road trip, trying to identify every new state we passed through. I earned a bit of money for each one I could name. I remember stopping at a welcome center and even at places that offered free orange juice. But the real Disney memory started once we drove onto Disney property, with signs letting us know that we were finally there. Up until the 1990s, there was even still a Disney radio station that would broadcast information about what wondrous experiences were in store for us. And as we drove and drove through seemingly nothing but swamps and wilderness, the excitement would build as we noticed bushes trimmed in the shape of Disney characters. And more excitement when we got close enough to actually see the monorail tracks. And even more excitement when we paid to park in the huge parking lot and boarded a tram to the monorail station. The narration on those parking lot trams had already told us a bit about what to expect for the day, and we'd eagerly choose either the ferry boat or the monorail as our way to actually get to the Magic Kingdom. We were so close, yet still very far away. And this pre-show really helped set the tone for what we were truly doing, leaving our world and entering Disney's world. Once actually on the ferry boat or monorail, more narration would tell us specifics about the adventures ahead. And... 
When we pulled into the stations outside of Main Street, there were just a few more obstacles before we'd be back in turn-of-the-century America, ready to choose which part of the world or moment in time, or both, we planned to explore first. It was truly magical stepping off of a sleek, futuristic monorail and approaching the entrance gates knowing how isolated the park was. You could only get to it by boat or monorail, after all. But years later, a bus stop was added right in front of the Magic Kingdom. Now stepping off the boat or monorail wasn't as magical. You knew you could have just been dropped off in the same type of bus you probably had running through your city back home. And sometimes you could even smell the bus fumes, a scent that certainly made me think about downtown Houston. While this did take away from some of the magic of Arrival, the bigger issue is the removal of the entire pre-show to visiting the Magic Kingdom. To so many of us that grew up visiting Walt Disney World, no visit was complete without hearing these famous monorail words. Please stand clear of the doors. Por favor, manténganse alejado de las puertas. And I know it's not just me. In recent history, and by that I mean in the past decade or so, the monorail spill has been updated a number of times. And the passing of the original voice actor, Jack Wagner, meant that a new voice was going to have to be used to record the spill. But to this day, they have still retained that original monorail voice saying, please stand clear of the doors. That audio was clearly part of the Disney experience and important enough to put forth the resources to preserve it in the new spill mix rather than simply have the new guy spend a few extra seconds and read them again. And that's my point. Unless you're very new to visiting Disney, you know those words. You know what you think of when you hear them. But to a whole new generation of Disney World visitors who have only used Disney's Magical Express and Disney's transportation while staying on site, they may have never heard them. Unless they specifically chose a route that would get them let off at the transportation and ticket center where they could then specifically choose to ride the ferry boat or the monorail. Those two bits of transportation might never have been part of their Disney experience. So when they hear these famous words, Please stand clear of the doors. Por favor, manténganse alejado de las puertas. It may mean nothing to them. Perspective is fun. Perhaps to many, the experience isn't about getting there. It's about what you do once you're there. And that's fair. And in the case of the theme parks, most folks are there to ride rides. Take away the rides and how often would we go? And Disney does rides unlike any other company. While there may be bigger and faster rides, it's difficult to find any that create such a complete experience outside of a Disney park. Oh, and that's not counting some of the more recent off-the-shelf rides Disney has used, which seem to have little to distinguish them from the same ride set up at a Six Flags or wherever, but that's a subject of another podcast. With rides, Disney knew there was more to it than just riding a spinny ride. The ride would be a giant teacup, and it would spin to music from the Mad Hatter's Tea Party from Alice in Wonderland. An off-the-shelf ride concept that could be found in regional parks across America of a World War II biplane would become flying elephants decorated like something right out of the Dumbo cartoon. A typical carnival-style dark ride would become much more immersive with movie-quality sets and music. And as the Disney designers learned more and more about three-dimensional entertainment, a simple boat ride would be transformed into the Pirates of the Caribbean, and a simple carnival dark ride would be transformed into the Haunted Mansion. And Disney knew there was much more to the experience than just the ride, just like there was more to a movie than just the big action sequence. Immersive waiting areas would be created. You'd be in line walking through a foyer or portrait hallway in an old mansion. You'd pass through a jungle outpost and see artifacts and hear radio transmissions. You'd walk through an ancient temple trying to decipher the hieroglyphics on the wall. You'd prepare for your journey into space by walking through the corridors of a space station. 
Even before you ever sat down in the ride vehicle, fastened a seatbelt or lowered a safety bar, the mood had been set, the introduction had been made, and the first act had been played out. And then there came FastPass. I love FastPass, and I use it every chance I get. But I still make sure to go through the standby line on any new attraction that opens, because I know there are things in that line I'm supposed to see, or feel, or notice, or not notice and just soak up subconsciously, whatever. Before I find myself on a runaway train through the mountains of Everest, there is something they wanted to show me. And sure, I may skip lines much of the time on older attractions I've ridden hundreds of times, but not all of them. I'd never want to skip hearing the ghost host in the expanding room at the Haunted Mansion, even if there was a fast pass that would allow me to jump directly to the Doom Buggies. I'll even ask to wait for the next group if the spill has already started playing, because I find that to be an important part of the ride experience. I may not feel the same way about Dinosaur over at Disney's Animal Kingdom. There may be some wonderful facts we learned from Bill Nye in the museum waiting area, but how many times do we need to watch the same pre-show video of Dr. Seeker or the one at Stitch's Great Escape? Some pre-show movies may be more compelling, like Rod Serling at the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, or maybe the crazy antics of the Muppets. Honestly, have you ever gotten there early enough to see the entire pre-show video at Muppet Vision 3D? If not, be sure to do that next time. Wait around until they start to load the theater, but don't go in. Stay in the waiting area and watch the whole pre-show from start to finish. It's, it's really good stuff. But the reason I bring all this up is once again connected to a new generation of Disney visitors that have always had FastPass. Today, there are people I know who have ridden Expedition Everest multiple times, but have never stood in the full standby queue. To be honest, I think I'm one of them. I've ridden it a few times, but since it was so new and they always had such a long line, I don't recall if I've ever gone through the normal full queue. And the normal full, full queue contains many elements that were not replicated in the shorter FastPass queue. So, think of all the folks who made their first trip to Disney World since the adoption of FastPass, who may have only visited in peak times and therefore have yet to experience the weird interactive videos from Soren's queue, or who were currently going through uh, Toy Story Mania without ever seeing what Disney claimed was one of their most advanced animatronics ever, Mr. Potato Head. Some FastPass lines aren't so bad. They skip switchback lines, but they still let folks see whatever pre-show there is. But there is always some kind of element that gets missed by skipping the full line. A cute sign on the wall. Uh, some hidden Mickeys. Some clues to just why you're about to encounter what you're about to encounter, like a giant Yeti. And with all this skipping becoming the norm at a Disney park, I now understand why Disney didn't bother to keep the Disney World radio station on the air. Folks coming in on Magical Express buses now have their own onboard program to enjoy. But could we someday see a time when the ferry boats and monorails are decommissioned and replaced by buses entirely? For rides, we may someday see a time when there is no queue, just an advanced ride reservation system that shows when you can walk up and hop in a vehicle within 5 or 10 minutes. What if every guest carried a small credit card-sized computer that allowed them to queue up at any attraction virtually, then be notified by an alarm later in the day to tell them what time to head over, maybe even using GPS to guide them and predict when they needed to start walking to get there on time. With every guest using one of these portable computers, the whole theme park experience could be optimized to the point where long lines are a thing of the past, and thus, long detailed queues and elaborate pre-shows would become unnecessary.
So in a future episode, I do have plans to share with you how such a system might work, including how it could work today using cell phones and some other gadgets. Some of this is based on information filed in patents by Disney and other companies, and some is based on my own experience working in the embedded computer field. It could be fun especially if we can share some ideas on how we think such a system could be improved. Who knows? Maybe we can, to use one of those odd internet terms, crowdsource the ultimate ride reservation system, and to use another term, open source it so any theme park could use it. Of course, we'd probably just get sued by some patent lawyer who is clever enough to patent some obvious solution to an obvious problem, but I digress. I just know that when I'm out at Walt Disney World next time, I still plan to have a rental car and drive my way onto Walt Disney World property, soaking up all the signs and shaped bushes. I plan to hop aboard a monorail to the Magic Kingdom one day and ride the ferry boat on another, listening to all four versions of the spills. I plan to walk into Main Street USA pretending that there's no other way to get to this magical kingdom except by boat or monorail. And I plan to enjoy the extended queues of Pirates of the Caribbean, The Haunted Mansion, Expedition Everest, and Toy Story Mania, knowing that someday, for some generation, these queues may not be a part of their visit. And speaking of visits, the next time you're there, be sure to take an extra picture, shoot some extra video, because you really never know when something you like, love, or hate is going to go away and never be around again. It could even be your favorite cue. And on that note, I think that'll do it for me this time, so be sure to visit DisneyFans.com, where you can browse around 53,000 digital pictures I've taken at Disneyland, Disney World, and other theme parks across the country, as well as dozens of downloadable video files from the Disney parks. And if you want to drop me a note, my email address is podcast at DisneyFans.com. This has been the Park Hopping Podcast, show number 77, Standing in Line. Thanks for listening. Another Crappy Podcast production. Be sure to visit anothercrappypodcast.com to learn more about this and other equally exciting <sighs> podcasts. <laughs> Advertise your product or service on this podcast network. You'll receive one exclusive pre-roll placement so the audience doesn't get sick of hearing your message and multiple in-show mentions and post-roll ads. This unique placement reduces listeners from fast-forwarding through your message. Visit anothercrappypodcast.com for details.